This is a paid advertisement. Attention metrics are part of the zeitgeist, and for good reason. The industry needs a better quality measure than viewability. According to the IAB, 90% of advertisers plan to use attention metrics this year, so there's a good chance they're on your radar. If you're part of this forward-thinking majority, it's time to familiarize yourself with the Adelaide's AU. Endorsed by Adweek as the attention economy's most widely recognized metric, AU is available in nearly every DSP, SSP, and ad network. Learn more at adelaidemetrics.com. That's adelaidemetrics.com. Welcome to the Marcus Extra Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Eric Franchi, as well as our special guest, Nandini Jami, the co-founder of Check My Ads. Nandini, did I do justice to your name? You did a great job, Ari. Well, that's the first. So uh, just some quick housekeeping. First of all, you can now follow Marketecture TV on Threads, the new app from Instagram. We signed up yesterday. We have zero followers. You can be our first. Secondly, as always, if you're interested in advertising on this podcast, just email me, um, Ari at Marketecture TV. All right. Nandi, we have a following of this podcast of thousands of ad tech professionals. Some of them may not like you very much. Some of them may follow you on Twitter. Some may be scared to follow you on Twitter. But tell me how, how you got involved in this. What does Check My Ads do? And should people be scared of you? Wow, what an intro. <laughs> I ask myself every day, how did I get here? <laughs> oh, let, me, let me start simple. What, what does Check My Ads do? So Check My Ads is the ad tech watchdog. And our current mission is to dismantle the disinformation economy. How do you feel about that, Ari? I feel great about that. Okay. That, sound, that sounds like a great mission. I'm all for it. I'm going to donate. It's a nonprofit. Let's, let's start there. Is that correct? Yeah. Contrary to a lot of opinion out there, we are nonpartisan. We are not a political outfit. Our goal is to create transparency in the advertising ecosystem. That's what we want. I know that when, you're, when you sent over the notes for what we wanted to talk about today, you had us down as a consultancy, and that's also something that, well, we, we were running a consultancy, I guess, three years ago now we launched a consultancy because I was working on Sleeping Giant. Well, let me just back up real, real quick. Okay. I was a marketing manager for various tech startups, for like various B2B tech startups. That was like my career prior to this. And I co-founded Sleeping Giants, the campaign best known for demonetizing Breitbart. And I was working on that as a side gig for many years and I wasn't getting paid for it. So I was also like working full time as like my full time job. And what happened was I was like, why, why am I still here? You know, like this problem of, you know, ads on hate speech was something that we intended to bring attention to and then have the industry come up with solutions. Like I wanted to, I fully expected to be out of the game after a couple months, you know. And then it didn't happen. And what happened instead was advertisers and agencies in the industry appeared to start to rely on sleeping giants as like a permanent fixture. And I'm like, that's not tenable. It is not tenable for like economically. It's not it doesn't make sense to have a bunch of like volunteers on Twitter telling you where your ads are. And so like that sort of took us to wanting to start. Well, first of all, the question for us, for, for me and my now co-founder, Claire Atkin, was like, when does Sleeping Giants go out of business? Right. That's that's what we wanted. That was our success me metric. And so we started a newsletter, first of all, because we didn't know anything about advertising. We're marketers. You know, we know about marketing, but we don't know how like 
on-the-ground technical advertising stuff works at this time. So we started a newsletter to sort of like to share with other marketers what we were learning when we, you know, interviewed and had calls with folks like yourself, you know, like people who are experts in this industry. And what happened instead was we we started to publish research, like researchers started to come to us with things that they had found, like fishy things that they had found in the ecosystem. We sort of did our best to communicate it to the public. And so all of a sudden we sort of became like an investigative outfit. Right. And and then we sort of we were like, OK, you know what, we should we should start a consultancy so that we can provide the service to Fortune 500 companies and, you know, other big budget sort of folks. And um, so we we launched this this consultancy and we very quickly found that we couldn't get the data that we needed to do the work. Right. So, you know, we were talking to a Fortune 500 company, you know, like multi million dollar budget. And we said, go to your brand safety vendor and ask them for XYZ data. And they would go and be unable to get it. And like, no matter what we did, no matter who we, you know, what client we were working with, we couldn't get the data. So how are we going to do the job that we set out to do? We realized we couldn't do it. What data did you ask for at the time? We asked for like log level, log level files. And, you know, there's all sorts of, I mean, there are some privacy reasons that they might not want to. And that's the, that's the kind of reasons that they cited. But we wanted access to, for example, from a brand safety vendor, we wanted to know what, what URLs are you placing ads on? What URLs are you blocking ads on? Because all they're getting is category level details. And we had done research at this point that showed that these categories were overwhelmingly inaccurately executed. Yeah, I think some of the platforms out there, DSP platforms like the Trade Desk, you're going to probably be able to get pretty good log level data. But a brand will have some of their spend on the trade desk, some on Google, some on Facebook, and it starts becoming very difficult to get a f- complete picture. So you went from a consultancy, you you kind of shelved that, and you went fully into a nonprofit. Yeah, we realized we weren't going to be able to get the data. And so what our real role here was to fight for the data, to fight for this transparency. Because I had seen while running Sleeping Giants that when advertisers are given access to information about where their ads are running, they overwhelmingly make the right decision. And so over and over, we realized I kept doing this over the years and there was very few exceptions to this rule. So we decided to start this watchdog knowing that we were the only people who had ever attempted to do this, to be a real independent watchdog that doesn't take money from ad tech companies that doesn't work with or, you know, have a relationship with Google, Facebook, Amazon, the other big tech companies. Right. So I want to hear how it works. Um, And I think our audience does, too. I'm picturing you and your team just hitting refresh on Breitbart every five seconds and then looking at some ads and then posting on Twitter. Can you believe this ad is there? But I'm, I'm confident you have a better answer than that. What does your day look like? What do you do with your coffee in the morning? How are you finding all this bad stuff? Uh, yeah, great question. Uh, no two days are alike here at Check My Ads. And uh, we are a growing organization, and therefore I I don't have as much time to sit around and watch Steve Bannon as I did, let's say, last summer. <laughs> the hazard of the job, right? But yeah, like, sometimes it really is, uh, it, it is just like me being like, huh, okay, let me turn on War Room and see what's going on on there. I mean, it was only, like, last summer I... You know, I have I have like a Roku TV downstairs and I 
learned from a coworker that like who was watching War Room on their TV that was a Samsung that there was different ads on Samsung and Roku. Like I'm not right that much of an expert on ads. I'm still learning every day, so it was a surprise to me and I was like, "Wow, okay." So I went out and bought a Samsung and I got it. So now I have a Samsung and LG and a Roku and like last summer I watched TV on, I watched War Room on all these different TVs. I had them all going and like, what what ads am I going to find? And it was just like a little project that kind of took over my life. And <laughs> so, so you are just hitting refresh on Breitbart until you find an ad. It's not, yeah. Okay. So sometimes, yeah, it is sometimes like that. But, but other times it's, I, I go through, I fall into a lot of rabbit holes. I'm a bit of an obsessive researcher. So I will just be on something, something catches my attention and then I want to check it out. A lot of the time is spent in, you know, looking at people's sellers.json's, ads.txt, looking for patterns or um, companies that look strange to me. <laughs> like what? Why do you walk us through a case study? Like you, you, saw, you saw an ad from a brand and then what? I'm not looking as much as at ads these days. I'm looking at okay. systems. I'm okay. I would say that's the big difference between Sleeping Giants and Check My Ads. At Sleeping Giants, you know, Sleeping Giants also reflected our understanding of advertising at that time. It was like, okay, the ad is on the website, so that means they're making money from that brand. But what I know now, and that, and I'm sure that your audience also knows, is that it's not a issue of the ad being on the website. It is the fact that the pipeline exists and can funnel money to organizations that are like bad actors. And so one thing that we have used through our our knowledge and our research and you know people smarter than us telling us is we've shifted our focus from asking advertisers to block a domain to blocking seller sorry removing seller accounts. And we have been overwhelmingly successful at that because what we have been able to prove over over time is that Seller accounts are often, A, mislabeled as dark pools. We can talk about that. Two, we found that when you have access to a seller account, you can engage in shenanigans like having a, having a, you know, a bad website and then having like a nice little content firm that doesn't trigger any brand safety vendors. They essentially subsidize the bad content with the good content and everybody, you know, everybody's happy except for the advertiser. And one of the big, I'll just add one more thing. One of the big things that we aim to change in the ad industry is the definition of brand safety, which in the industry today is understood as an adjacency issue. Oh, I don't want my ad appearing next to the bad content. No, no, no. That's not the problem we're solving for here. The problem we're solving for is why is Breitbart still getting access to ad dollars after they have been blocked and after your ads have all been blocked from appearing on that content? So you, you partly answered the question that 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 I've been thinking about, which is um, so Double Verified was founded in 2008, largely on the basis to address brand safety issues, which have been you know an issue in internet advertising, digital advertising since the beginning, right? So Double Verified 2008. I was just doing a little bit of googling before and pulled up an article from March of 2017. The title is Chase had ads on 400,000 sites. Then on just 5,000, same results. And today, right, 2023, we're still dealing with all of these issues. So 
my question to you, which again, you sort of partly answered is like, why after 15 years of, you know, like seemingly successful technology companies that were built to address this, are we seeing the same stuff happen over and over again? It's like insane. That's the eternal question, isn't it? Right. (laughs) Well, I think it's that the more that I think about it, it feels like kind of a matrix that we are kind of stuck in where every player in this industry has an interest, uh, an active financial or professional interest in maintaining the status quo. That includes the the agencies, the the ad tech vendors, the, you know, I, I advertisers sometimes are, they don't want to find fraud. We kind of all have right. that, have, you know, like the unspoken, uncomfortable truth. So people don't want to find that stuff. And there are, you know, people, truth tellers out there around ad fraud, but it really does look like the only thing that people care about is when they get caught with an ad next to an unsavory piece of content. That is that seems to be the only thing that gets the attention of the CMO, the CEO. If you remember from 2017, the that whole Uber thing happened at the time of the Muslim ban and they like surged the prices and people were pissed. So around that time was also the time that Sleeping Giants was putting a lot of pressure on Uber to block their ads from Breitbart. They hadn't done it yet. Travis gets mad and just kind of freaked out, goes to the uh, head of acquisition, Kevin Frisch, and says, like, F it, just block Breitbart. And so Kevin is like, yeah, OK. And so blocks it, goes to all the vendors, hey, please block Breitbart, and then realizes that some, some of them are still letting the ads slip through. So he goes in and, bl- and like pauses all those vendors that are continuing to serve ads on Breitbart and braces for a huge drop in conversions because this is like peak Uber Lyft wars, right? Every dollar matters or so they think. And when he doesn't see that drop in conversion, he's like, well, what's going on here? We are, you know, we're spending millions of dollars left and realizes he's been defrauded. Uber was defrauded over $90 million, which is like two thirds of their budget. I only found this out years later when he like LinkedIn DM'd me and, and told me and I was just shocked that but it, brand safety was the window through which they uncovered that fraud. Yeah, if you if you try to stamp out the last little bit of Breitbart, for example, you'll find out that it still exists through some strange channels you don't understand. I want to I want to deep dive on a couple of things you said about mislabeling sellers. Who's doing that? Is that is that a DSP problem? Is it it's in the sellers.json that it's being mislabeled? It's in the sellers.json. Overwhelmingly, I will find uh, something labeled a publisher and thousands of unrelated domains sitting in that seller account. And a lot of the time, it's very some very nice and high quality websites along with very low quality websites. Right. It's very clear what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So someone has tags on page of a whole, they're an ad network or an SSP. And they have a lot of good stuff, but also a lot of bad stuff. They put it all together under one seller uh, with some innocuous name like Neo Futures Media or something. I just made that up, but they always have names like that. And then on the ads.txt, you have people who are resellers who are claiming to be publishers. That seems like it's the most obvious form of fraud. Yeah, that's right. And and people have fought us on this and and they've lost. They've all lost because a couple of years ago, Freestar was very upset that we we called them i don't remember what i called them to be honest (laughs) i call a lot of people a lot of names but they were working with dan bongino and tim pool these are two of the insurrectionists that we were targeting 
And so I went to Freestar and and I said, you, y'all are not using your ads.txt properly. You're claiming Dan Bongino as a publisher and you are an intermediary. And I called them a dark pool sales house. That's what I called them. Yep. They were very upset about that. And they threatened to sue and said, take it back. And we said, no, we have a run looking right here <laughs> at the ads.txt protocol that clearly says you have mislabeled your accounts. And uh, they backed off. They never sued us. And they dropped Bongino and Tim Pool. So you tell me. Okay. You brought up Dan Bongino. Um, so <laughs> he really doesn't like you. <laughs> like, I mean, like you two have a real beef. Um, well, cool. tell, yeah, I know. Uh, but it's kind of, I find it a little bit amusing just uh, how, how fierce these, uh, this uh, dislike is. Um, what, what's the history there? I never, like, I didn't even think about this guy. But what happened was in, in 2021, I uh, tweeted at Warby Parker that their ads were on Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire. And they immediately blocked the, like, publicly, you know, confirmed that they were blocking it. It was an unintentional ad placement. And that was cool. We we're really happy about that. And uh, I think the next day, Bongino, like, was tweeting at me and then picked it up and put it on his, like, talked about me on his podcast. And I am not one to back down. And so I sort of rep replied to him about that. And then it just turned into like, I guess, a beef. And like what I think is that someone like him needs content and villains to keep right. his little disinfo narrative going. He needs like <laughs> it's fodder for advertising, right? Like it's content, which he can then monetize. So um, so he did that. And I sort of played along with it because I knew that he was one of the biggest uh, voices behind the behind election disinformation. And what happened was I received so much hate and harassment and death threats that I wanted advertisers to see that I wanted to I wanted my followers to see that. <laughs> I mean, that's that was the motivation for me. That remains the motivation for me. I want people to see what is possible, what happens. And let me tell you, that thing escalated to the point where Dan Bongino and Tim Pool published articles. I mean, they published all kinds of things about me, like I'm anti-Semitic, calling me a child predator, whatever, like all kinds of really nasty things that could tank a person's career. You know, right. this is serious stuff to be accusing someone of, you know, the same of my of my player, my co-founder. But anyway, it, they escalated it to the point where they claimed that they, they wrote an article saying that Tim Pool had been swatted one day after I tweeted about him. And it was clear what that meant. They, for, and for anyone in your audience who doesn't know what a swatting is, it's when you call in like a serious violent like event happening in your house and they will send over a SWAT team who will probably kill you when you open the door because they're, you know, waiting for a killer. They're looking for a killer. It's, it's, it's a death threat. I mean, it's an actual like act of violence to do that. And that is the only time that I actually really freaked out. And I started to sort of aggressively ask the ad industry to back me up and have Google pull out of, of Bongino because they remained his one last exchange working with him. And soon thereafter, actually weeks after that happened, Google did permaban him for, they say, COVID reasons, like COVID disinfo reasons. But I know I have a lot of followers at Google and, and I like to think that someone was looking out. Right. So you, so you demonetized him and, uh, and that sounds really tough. Let's talk about Google. Um, so is Google a good actor or a bad actor in this entire world? The worst actor, Ari. The worst. Okay. Tell me. The absolute worst. Where do I begin? The, they have over 2 billion publishers in their inventory. 
by far the largest monetizer in general in the world. And among that, let's let's just talk in terms of transparency, because that is ultimately our goal here. Most of them, something like, you know, 90 percent of these publishers are untraceable to an, to a seller account. It's unbelievable. So we only have access to a small handful of those seller accounts. And of those seller accounts that we do have access to, most of them don't give you company or domain information. So where are we sending the money? It's like we're, ha- we're like walking around with suitcases full of cash, letting Google hand it out to whoever on the Internet. And how how do we not think that that is like the root of all of our problems? How how is anyone in this industry talking about transparency when we literally don't? Nobody's asking for seller account information. Right. Google claims. So here's Google's claim, uh, which is that they don't even run an exchange. They run an ad server called GAM. And it's up to the publisher to determine if they want to tell the rest of the industry who they are and that Google is just an intermediary. That is their that's that's why the they got rid of the name AdX. It doesn't exist. There is no exchange. It's it's authorized buyers uh, because the buyers transact with the sellers. They're just they don't even exist. That's their point of view, which I think is absurd. It's comical. I mean, if I was working for Google, that's what I would come up with, too. Oh, we're just the pipeline. We just run GAM. We just run some technology, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's what they've been saying for years. And that's what we've been working to demolish over time. If you recalled in 2016, when we started this work, everybody in tech, and I'm not just talking advertisers, I'm talking about all software would say we are just the software, we're just the pipeline. But since 2016, if you have noticed, I have because I do this for a living, all of the ad exchanges and ad networks have introduced increasingly robust supply policies. And that is a direct result of advertisers asking for it because consumers are asking for it. And so that means that a company like Playwire has a supply policy that says explicitly, like under prohibited content, we do not work with individuals or organizations that attempt to over... Well, that's a low bar. It's very, very useful. <laughs> very useful, actually, when we were like, you gotta... You, what, what's Charlie Kirk doing in there? <laughs> Charlie Kirk sends, sends 80 buses over to Capitol Hill for the insurrection, I mean... So you seem optimistic. Is this is this problem being solved, and is it solvable? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't be here if I didn't think it was solved. I think this is the, the best possible position to be in at this time. I'll be honest, there's days that I'm like, nothing is happening, I'm depressed and sad. But if I look back on what has happened over the past month, or what has happened over six months, or over the past few years, there's a very clear trend that is working in our favor. And that trend is increased accountability, increased awareness, increased support for, like, check my ads and the things that we are fighting for. And that together has created a movement of not just consumers and the public, but people within the industry who are, like, working for the same goals that we are and doing what they can from their position of power and influence. And that is that is so meaningful to us because that means that we're not working alone. We are working with the support of a network of people. Broadly speaking, whether it's technology companies, consultancies, agencies that um, you admire, that you think are doing things right, that are particularly helpful to to the cause. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then, then where where is some of the positive momentum coming from? Uh, from people who work behind the scenes. 
anonymous. <laughs> I can't give you names. But no, there's there's pe- no, I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you this. There are people within agencies who follow our work, who do their own sort of audits and research. They make requests to their vendors after seeing, you know, stuff that we have published. And that's why every branded, every newsletter that we publish has a call to action that says like two or three things that you can like actual tangible things that you can do. So if it's like asking an advertiser asking for for the you know for their data for you know for their brand safety data that makes a difference if they I mean we after after we publish some of the information about about like Google not releasing seller accounts we ask people to go to their Google rep and ask for their for seller information they should have access to that stuff so so uh, so I started this interview by saying that uh, people in the ad tech community were scared of you. I do think seeing in your Twitter feed, you've been mentioned by Check My Ads as kind of the greatest fear of any ad tech executive. I want to talk a little bit about part of your strategy is public shame. Like basically, uh, maybe you disagree, but this is how I see it. Like when you find someone who's doing something wrong, you call them out publicly and loudly. And I think you've gotten some criticism for that. So is that a valid technique? Is it uh, you want to defend your... Uh, yeah. modus operandi. Yeah, absolutely. I we don't call out everybody in public. We actually uh, privately. I I've made it a practice to try to privately reach out first and take care of things behind the scenes. I mean, I I think we work in in good faith. We do, and the work that I did prior to I guess like in between sleeping giants and check my ads was emailing people privately. I mean, that's how I got Dan Bongino kicked off of so many things. I was emailing with these ad exchanges, providing them with evidence, citing their own supply policy to them. I'm almost helping them to enforce their own supply policy or to understand their own supply policy because it looks like they've brought all these policies into place, but they don't, don't enforce them, which is like, fine, either have the policy and enforce it or don't have the policy. And I'm like, just be honest with your advertisers about what you're doing. So in a way, I'm stress testing your policy for you for free. You're welcome. <laughs> I have been on the other side of a private email DM from you on uh, to try to work out an issue so I can confirm that that really does happen. There, there was an incident like uh, right after the Dobbs decision on abortion where you just went fully ballistic on Aaron Hoffman and Safegraph and all of his investors, um, some of whom are probably listening to this right now. And I, I'll give you my opinion, which is I, I think you were a little bit off base on that one. Uh, because the data was aggregate. It basically, the accusation, and tell me if you disagree with this, was that you could use SafeGraph to track women who are going to abortion clinics, and obviously that has a lot of really negative connotations. And the defense was, from Oren and others, was it was aggregated. You couldn't track any actual women. You could basically track anonymous IDs that would show you patterns of, you know, foot traffic. So any am I characterizing it correctly, or you disagree with me? Well, that data can be de-anonymized very easily. The uh, I don't believe it could. I mean, I, I did, looked into it as well. It wasn't a cookie, and it was also groups of users. It was cohorts. It wasn't in any individuals. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a technical expert. I don't know how you do it, but I talked right. to the experts, and they said you can do it quite easily. So, I mean, frankly, I mean, if you if you want my position, my position is is generally. I mean, when I when we started this conversation, I told you our current mission is to dismantle the disinformation economy. That means we have a future mission, and that future mission is to make surveillance advertising history. I, I don't believe we need surveillance advertising to sell 
the things that we sell. We don't need the amount of data that we are currently collecting on people to sell things. I'm sorry, it's, you don't need to know my period, uh, my menstrual cycle to sell me Sharpies. So that, that stuff doesn't need to be known. And, and my position is that that geolocation data is extremely dangerous to be collecting to begin with. I understand that we as marketers and particularly we as Americans are naive to the way that geolocation data can be used and abused by when it enters the wrong hands. And that's OK. Great. Let's take a break on that one and let's come back with the news because we have some really interesting and related stories to talk about. So interestingly, there is news that is very relevant to the rest of this conversation. Um, so there's been um, a bunch of news about Google, who we were talking about earlier, and their lack of transparency on where their videos are being shown. Um, so there was quite a bit of talk about this in last week's pod, about a report in the Wall Street Journal from a security researcher showing that a large amount, debatable how much, of Google's video was not in compliance with their own standards. And then you actually tweeted about the fact that the fellow who found this, um, Christoph, uh, was is a is a medical doctor. Uh, I didn't know that. That's kind of interesting. I I want to I want to actually correct that. Turns out he's almost a medical doctor. He has <laughs> finished. It. Sorry, I I I was working off the information from uh, Bob Hoffman's newsletter. Okay, almost a medical doctor. I, I'd let him check me out. I, I guess that would be yeah. fine. Close enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> How does this fit into your overall narrative? This uh, that Google was acting in this way in a non-transparent way. I think it fits in perfectly like a puzzle piece. Um, Google has been, to me, a, a monopoly or a duopoly is when you know you have one on your hands when the company is no longer serving the interest of the customer or the client. They're working solely to, they've hoarded their power and they're working to maintain that power. And so to me, Google looks a lot more like a mafia that has gained that power and at every turn, I mean, the, the the pattern seems to be, you know, hide the seller account information, hide the uh, the inventory, you know, whatever. Like we don't we don't actually know what's going on with our ads. And that is because Google has been working to essentially take control of our advertising dollars over time. And and we're seeing that now with Performance Max and all these other AI things and Google saying, trust us to find the best place to serve your ad. But we know that's not true because a couple years ago, we got our hands on the $1 million Google site list. $1 million spent by Google by default. What does that look like? We got our hands on a spreadsheet. And those ads are not going to the, the best places on the web, I can tell you that. Right, right, right. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that Google has 2 billion sites. That's like that's like a website for every four people on Earth. Uh, it's kind of a nutty statistic. <laughs> the, uh, the other, uh, Eric, any thoughts on the, this story as it keeps evolving? Have you heard anything? No, no, I haven't. Um, the news cycle uh, seemed to seem to move on, um, but I'm waiting for uh, waiting for some follow up. Yeah, I, people I, are asking I, I, for make goods. People are yeah. asking for you know like re real serious um, corrections. So that's going to be the thing that I think is going to be the next most interesting piece. Get the lawyers involved. Um, of course, the big story of last week was Media Mouth's bankruptcy. Uh, we did an emergency podcast on Friday. That was fun. Um, but uh, in the in the week following, the main piece of information that dropped was the actual filing where we saw who was owed the money with Magnite number one. I'll, I'll take a comment on this, which is uh, we were in the emergency podcast trying to speculate about how much money might be lost. And we did some back the envelope, uh, back of the napkin calculations. And we thought maybe 150 million might be at, at risk. It's actually a lot lower. It's like less than 50 million that's at risk, which I think speaks to the fact that media spend was probably declining quite precipitously. If you 
once again, back of the envelope. You assume they're paying late, so it's 60 days of receivable or maybe 90, and then you divide divide that or basically multiply it by six because uh, to get an annual figure, and you end up with about $300 million in spend. Now, that doesn't include Google because one thing Google is really good at is accounts receivable. And uh, so Google, the balance due from MediaMath to Google is very small because Google will shut you off if you don't pay on time. Uh, and uh, And various people commented on my Twitter threads that, uh, MediaMath had been uh, constrained on credit by many exchanges because of the risk of bankruptcy. Um, so it's very possible that the spend's a little bit higher, but they were actually trying to pay on time. So that's just interesting, interesting data point there. So there's like, there's real impact uh, when a platform shuts down immediately and with no notice. So, you know, one of the things that I think is, you know, be, being covered and discussed is like, what happens when a brand or agency loses um, access to their DSP. There's a lot of scrambling and there's a lot of scrambling that happens over the course of a, of a holiday weekend. And I think there's a lot, of, a lot of sort of like, you know, ad tech heroes or ad ops heroes um, that, uh, that, that deserve some, some recognition. One of the things that is not being discussed, which I think is pretty significant, is that you're right. Like, you know, there was compression and spend, probably, you know, sort of concentration on a few larger advertisers and agencies that use the platform. When they are shut off, there's impact not only to the supply side, but all of these other downstream uh, providers that help make a campaign work, whether that's like an identity company, creative, so on and so forth, right? Like all of this sort of like ad tech loom escape ecosystem. That gets shut off as well. And there's real yep. impact on like a broader set of companies than just the supply side. And then the other side of this is now that entire campaign that might've been sort of like custom built to run on MediaMath needs to be replicated across other DSPs and do those other DSPs have the integrations to make that happen. So I think we get to the other side of this where there's, you know, everything is going to be okay over time. I think you've got probably weeks and months ahead where there's companies that, you know, are going to be scrambling to try to figure out like how to maintain continuity on certain large accounts. Yeah. That's not being discussed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, there are campaigns on some of these DSPs that literally have been running for years. They just work and they run for years. They have no end date. I was asked that at Beeswax, like, could I get rid of the campaign end date? Never end. That was a feature request. It's also kind of interesting that they bank they declared bankruptcy and shut down on June 30th. It's actually kind of the perfect day. If you had to pick a day for your DSP to go bankrupt, June 30th is the day. Because a lot of campaigns end June 30th and July 4th weekend, you don't need to run any ads. And your payables are all nice and even. Everything, June 30th at midnight, it's a beautiful time to go bankrupt. Well done. But then it's July 7th. And it's like, so hey, you know, July 1st through July 4th, people are in hell. People are concerned. People are sort of starting to reforecast for the quarter. And then July 5th, a new work stream that you didn't anticipate begins. Yeah, absolutely. While you're on vacation. At least, I mean, they could have gone bankrupt on November 20th and really messed people up. So the last story I think is interesting here um, is that a judge in Louisiana uh, ordered that the Biden administration, or in general, the presidency, the executive branch, is not allowed to work with social media companies to stop disinformation. Uh, so the rationale in this case was, is effectively that um, it's a violation of the First Amendment for the government to tell social media what they are allowed to publish or advise them on what they're allowed to publish. And there's a very divisive opinion with, you know, the right wing people cheering it, the left wing people bemoaning it. Uh, reality somewhere in between. It's a Trump judge. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? 
I think it's a good thing. I'm actually very uh, I'm very against the government being involved in any matters related to disinformation. I think that is uh, something that should be left up to the free market. It's it's dangerous if you have the wrong government in power, they can abuse that. And I don't think that that's a place that we want to go to. But in this country, the free market is the most important thing. And in some ways, uh, I could argue that the Google and Facebook and Twitter are kind of the government in the sense that they do control our daily lives and uh, what we see in the news and and so on. So I think that we should, as as citizens, exercise our power as also consumers and consumers speaking up every day about what their values are, going to these advertisers, going to these companies and telling and organizing is the way to go. All right, Eric. I wonder how much, just, I, I agree, um, and have a question, maybe we can, we can bat through. Um, I wonder how much the Twitter files uh, impacted this. And if the Twitter files were never released, um, would this even have happened? My take on that is that the Twitter files had no, nothing interesting in them. But what they did was kind of bring into the mainstream the day-to-day activity that was happening between various government and political writers and the social media companies, which was a pretty robust conversation ever since the 2016 election. But I'm two of two sides. I, I sort of agree with uh, Nandini uh, about this being a First Amendment issue, but I do worry about persistent disinformation through things like anti-vax and other, you know, kind of these memes that are hard to put down um, that proliferate through the social networks and uh, the inability seemingly to stop some of them. I will say that this t- th- this exact dynamic is taking place with foreign governments. So, for example, the Indian, the Modi government is a big promoter of um, Islamophobia and and hate and a lot of bad stuff. And they have successfully gotten Twitter to drop or to block a BBC documentary that was critical of of the ruling party. So we can see already what the downstream effects are. We don't want that. We don't. Yeah, well said. All right, let's close on that. So this was an awesome conversation. I really feel like I learned a lot about what you're doing and uh, and how it's all working. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Ari. It was a pleasure. Eric, always fun. Uh, and uh, remember, follow us on Threads. You'll be the first one. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for subscribing to Architecture. New interviews are added every week at Markitecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.